What's in a mystery that makes it so compelling? Is it just an inability to leave well enough alone? We always have to know, don't we? Many people fill their days trying to avoid the unknown, but it's always going to be there. Nagging your thoughts with worry and obsession. The unknown drags us deeper into itself like a black hole until we fall into its center. And then the unknown, well, becomes known. Except, what happens when it doesn't? What happens if the unknown remains a mystery? What if that black hole just swallows us and there really is nothing but darkness on the other side? Sometimes that's just too much for people to process. As we will see in this week's podcast, some mysteries invite speculation, like a porch lamp invites moths. Just like an insect, we can't begin to help what we're doing. We simply are drawn to answering those questions that haunt us. We just can't help but fill in the gaps of a story. The gaps in the story that I'm about to tell you involve the still unanswered question of who built the oldest megalithic structure ever discovered and where exactly this machine we call human society came from. Join us for the next hour as we contemplate the confounding. We'll try to gain a little more understanding, but there are no easy answers here. This is Imperfect Clarity. Our story begins in Turkey, near the city of San Liorfa. Quick note, y'all know how I am with names. I did Google this one and listen to some how to pronounce this videos. I hope I did well enough not to offend anybody, but I don't speak Turkish, so... Okay, back to the show. This small city of about 2 million people, that's as of 2018, is a destination for pilgrims of all three of the major Abrahamic religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The town used to be called Urfa, and within its borders is a cave which is renowned as the birthplace of Abraham himself, the founder of Judaism, and an extremely important figure in all three of these traditions. The focus of this episode, however, is not going to be on Abraham, nor even on the cave that is said to have been his birthplace. Our focus, rather, will be centered about seven miles to the northeast of San Lirfa. The first hints of our story came to us from a survey of the southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey, conducted by Istanbul University and the University of Chicago. An American named Peter Benedict, standing on a reddish-brown hill which rises nearly 50 feet out of the comparatively colorless and bleak limestone plateaus of the Jeremus mountain range, stoops and picks up something most of us would find absolutely incredible, a flake of flint. Okay, I understand that a piece of flint might actually sound pretty boring. Consider, though, that this was no broken flint shard 
removed from its parent stone by the forces of nature. It was a tool manufactured by a Stone Age person. This particular hill and the starkly contrasting gray ground surrounding the plateau was littered with these flint knives. It is mind-boggling to me that someone could find a place covered in Stone Age tools and not be completely floored by the discovery. Peter Benedict, however, was certainly not completely floored. Part of the reason for this, I suppose, was because, well, this is exactly the kind of thing he was conducting his survey to find. Benedict was an archaeologist, and presumably... This meant handling Stone Age tools was just sort of part of another day on the job for him. He was impressed enough with this particular hill to make a note of it on his survey, but this part of the world is rich with Stone Age sites that have shaped the study of archaeology and everything we know about human history before the advent of the written language. As Peter Benedict turned the flint over in his hand, he recognized it as an artifact from the aceramic Neolithic. That is, the epoch of history considered within the Stone Age, but before the first creations of pottery. He did not foster much hope, however, that this red hill protruding from a gray plateau would hold any world-changing discoveries. He was, indeed, very mistaken about that. Along with these examples of flint tools, Benedict reported several slabs of broken limestone found in the area. They had been worked, that is to say, they showed signs of being shaped into the roughly square shapes which peaked out of the red soil. But they also showed signs of other human activity which did not excite the archaeologist. At some point, the local farmers had tried to break up and remove the large rocks. The observation was coupled with Benedict's presumption that the stones were markers for an early medieval Byzantine cemetery, and this all led the survey team to conclude that nothing of great interest could be gleaned from these knocks of red soil, as Benedict described them. Just over 30 years later, however, a German archaeologist named Klaus Schmidt would prove him to be monumentally wrong. following is a quote taken from the blog published by the research team that is now working on a site which has been opened on that red hill. This site has gained some notoriety in the last several years. You may recognize its Turkish name, Gobekli Tepe, which means Potbelly Hill. The name refers to the uniquely rounded shape of the hill, which was one of the first indications Klaus Schmidt picked up on that cued him in on the significance of what was buried in this reddish-brown dirt. Because this site is so important to our understanding of the origins of human society, and because a discovery of such magnitude being described firsthand by the scientist who is in charge of its investigation is endlessly fascinating to me, I have chosen to record it here for you verbatim. October 1994 The land colored by the evening sun we walk through slopey, rather difficult, and confusing terrain, littered with large basalt blocks. No traces of prehistoric people visible. No walls, pottery shirts, stone tools. Doubts regarding the sense of this trip. Like many before with the aim to survey prehistoric, in particular, Stone Age sites, 
were growing slowly but inexorably. Back in the village, an old man had answered our question whether there was a hill with Chakmaktashi, Flint, in the vicinity, with a surprisingly clear yes, and he had sent a boy to guide us to the place. We could only drive a small part of the way. At the edge of the basalt field, we had to start walking. Our small group was made up of a taxi driver from town, our young guide, Michael Morsch, a colleague from Heidelberg, and me. Finally, we reached a small hill at the border of the basalt field, offering a panoramic view of a wide horizon. Still no archaeological traces, just those of sheep and goat flocks brought here to graze. But we had finally reached the end of the basalt field. Now the barren limestone plateau lay in front of us. On the opposed hill, a large mound towered above the flat plateau, divided by depressions into several hilltops. Was that the mound we were looking for? The knocks of red soil Peter Benedict had described in his survey report? Gobekli Tepe. When we approached the flanks of the mound, the so far gray and bare limestone plateau suddenly began to glitter. A carpet of flint covered the bedrock and sparkled in the afternoon sun, not unlike a snow cover in the winter sun. But this spectacular sight was not only caused by nature, humans had assisted in staging it. We assured ourselves several times, these are not flint nodules fragmented by the forces of nature, but flakes, blades and fragments of cores. In short, artifacts. Other finds, in particular pottery, were absent. On the flanks of the mound, the density of flint became lower. We reached the first long-stretched stone heaps, obviously accumulated here by decades of farmers clearing their fields. One of these heaps held a particularly large boulder. It was clearly worked and had a form that was easily recognizable. It was the T-shaped head of a pillar of the Nibali Chori type. That was taken from the blog, The Tepe Telegrams, News and Notes from the Gobekli Tepe Research Staff, from an article titled Gobekli Tepe, The First 20 Years of Research, published June 2, 2016, by Oliver Daedric. Navali Chori is another Neolithic archaeological site in the Urfa region of Turkey. Klaus Schmidt had been working on the excavation team for this site up until the area was flooded in 1991, by the Ataturk Dam. This site had also revealed some surprises for the scientists studying it, but nothing quite on the same level of what was later to come from Gobekli Tepe. There were the square houses archaeologists had expected to find in an early agricultural site, but there was also an odd structure which was quite unlike anything yet discovered from this time period. The unique identifying characteristic of this structure were huge T-shaped pillars which held up the walls and two additional T-pillars that stood in the center facing each other. On these pillars were various carvings, some of which led researchers, including Klaus Schmidt, to conclude that the pillars were highly abstracted representations of the human form. These pillars found at Navali Chori were so spectacular and so unique 
that their shape became easily recognizable to Klaus Schmidt. The large slabs of limestone that Peter Benedict had mistaken for medieval gravestones, Klaus Schmidt quickly saw were actually the tops of these megalithic pillars. The thing that is most important to understand about these pillars, why Gobekli Tepe has gained more and more renown as time passes since their rediscovery in 1994, is not their distinctive T-shape or the beautiful bas-relief artwork carved into them. It's their age. Gobekli Tepe is arranged into three distinct layers, each constructed and then subsequently buried for unknown reasons. The lower two are from the pre-pottery Neolithic epoch of prehistory. The uppermost layer, layer one, consists of soil deposited by erosion and the constant use of this ground as farmland in the millennia following the Neolithic construction. In other words, the old layers are the lower two, and the top layer is the modern layer. Layer 2 sports some rectangular enclosures somewhat similar to the other sites which have been studied in the region, such as Novalichori. But it's Layer 3 which has turned the archaeological world on its head. Radiocarbon dating of charcoal found in the layers of sediment in which Layer 3 was buried, as well as the comparison of the stone tools found alongside these structures and the stratigraphy of these layers of sediment, date the T-shaped pillars and elaborate carvings found in Gobekli Tepe to circa 9,000 BCE. That's 11,000 years ago. Six and a half thousand or so years before the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. Think about that for a moment. Six and a half thousand or so years before the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. The oldest form of written language we have yet to find is that contained in cuneiform clay tablets created by ancient Sumerians. These triangular indentations mushed into wet clay took decades of study and intense work from archaeologists and scholars of various ancient cultures to decipher. Even the oldest known example of what we call proto-writing, the Sumerian Kish tablet, is three and a half thousand years old. Gobekli Tepe is 11,000 years old. That means that when the Kish tablet was written, when human beings were first starting to learn how to write at all, Gobekli Tepe was already twice as old to the humans living then as those ancient Sumerians are to us now. I feel like that bears repeating. When human beings first invented writing, Gobekli Tepe was already twice as old to those humans as they are to us now. This puts an abysmal gulf between the people that built this monumental stone building and the people eager to learn why they did so. There are no carvings in the pillars and walls that could clue us in, really. There are no hieroglyphs to translate, no pictograms to decipher. 
There was no writing anywhere in the world then. Even if someone somewhere had been so ahead of their time that they had written something down about the huge cathedral on a hill, as Klaus Schmidt would sometimes call the site at Gobekli Tepe, how could we possibly understand or begin to translate something so incredibly ancient? The mind-blowing expanse of time means that there is practically no identifiable connection between the builders of Gobekli Tepe and even the most ancient cultures that we have some understanding of today. There are carvings galore on these magnificent pillars, but they don't speak to us the same way that carvings on the walls of an Egyptian tomb do. We can see some evidence of what the people who used this amazing site must have been like. We see their tools, we find bits of their food, we admire the art they carved into the stones, but we don't know what any of these carvings really mean. We don't know why any of these stone structures were put here. We don't know what these people believed or felt or wanted. We can see their ghosts wandering among the stones of this red hill, but they remain silent. incredible antiquity of Gobekli Tepe is truly mind-blowing, but there's more to the story than that. You see, this site's immense age dates it back to a period of time of human development that puts it decidedly out of place. In fact, the dating of such a megalithic structure into this Neolithic epoch of prehistory has forced archaeologists to rethink the prevailing narrative of the birth of human society. Gobekli Tepe was constructed not by an organized ancient culture with specialized workers who were fed by bountiful crops, but rather by hunter-gatherers who had not yet even begun to cultivate crops at all. Before Klaus Schmidt unearthed this enigmatic temple in the countryside of Turkey, the presumption was that agriculture had led to surplus food stores and a more sedentary lifestyle, which in turn allowed for specialization, and then the construction of huge megalithic temples. Gobekli Tepe, however, shows that this presumption was all wrong. We had the story backwards. There has been no workers' housing found on the site. No cultivated grain stores have been discovered there. No evidence of livestock has been extracted from the red earth of this hill, and no traces of any technology more advanced than the flint shards that glitter among the brown stones of the plateau. There has, however, been evidence of feasting found amongst the pillars. But every animal bone found has been that of a wild animal. Things like gazelles, which make up the largest proportion of animal remains found on the site by a huge margin. Gazelles, geese, wild boar, vultures, deer, etc. But interestingly, Gobekli Tepe is not that far removed from agriculture and animal husbandry at all. It wouldn't be long, geologically speaking, after the silent ghosts stopped using their cathedral on a hill that they would begin to cultivate their grains and corral their animals. 
Less than 20 miles from Gobekli Tepe, geneticists have identified the world's first variety of wheat to be domesticated. They call it einkorn wheat, and they've estimated through radiocarbon dating of the remains that were left in a prehistoric village near Gobekli Tepe that it was cultivated about ten and a half millennia ago. That's only about 500 years after Gobekli Tepe was first built. Is there a connection here? Could the construction of this massive stone enclosure have somehow kick-started the birth of agriculture, settled villages, human society in general? Some people think so, to varying degrees. Graham Hancock seems to be pretty keen on branding Gobekli Tepe as proof of his pseudoscientific theory. In his book, Fingerprints of the Gods, he proposed a theory which was later revised in his second book, Magicians of the Gods, that an Atlantean-like ancient technologically advanced civilization existed and then was nearly extinguished by a cataclysm at the beginning of the geological era called the Younger Dryas. According to his speculative theory, a scant few survivors from this great lost civilization became the Promethean progenitors who taught the lowly hunter-gatherers the secrets of technology. He points to Gobekli Tepe as proof of his theory. One of the most prominent features of his theory, however, is the transmission of knowledge from this lost ancient civilization to the hunter-gatherers, such as the knowledge of metallurgy. There is no evidence of metallurgy at Gobekli Tepe. There is not even any evidence that the people who built Gobekli Tepe knew how to make pottery, much less metal tools. Hancock relies heavily on two things as proof, that's in scare quotes, for his claims. The first is matching some of the animals carved into the pillars and the oldest layer of the site to constellations in the zodiac. I mean, come on. I can barely see why the ancients thought that the constellation Sagittarius looked like a half-horse man with a bow. And I love astronomy. I've been stargazing since I was a child. It's pretty clear to me that one could superimpose a vulture under that particular group of stars and convince someone that that's what it looks like. A vulture, or Uncle Sam, or a flying spaghetti monster, or a ham sandwich. The other type of proof that Hancock leads heavily on is what really bugs me about his claims, though. It consists of the basic model, See this awesome megalithic structure? that is incredibly ancient, how amazing it is the people who lived in this time period couldn't possibly have created this. They must have had help from a civilization much more like our own. This argument saddens me. I mean, yeah, Graham Hancock's version of prehistory, it's a truly fascinating idea. It's a really cool story. I'd love to see a movie about the whole survivor of an ice age catastrophe joining up with a band of hunter-gatherers teaching in the roots of technology and the wisdom gained by this advanced society. The plot even gets better when you throw in the warnings that this cataclysmic doom that destroyed the Atlanteans could be a cyclical occurrence and that the far future civilization in our own time 
must take heed to the clues that our lonely survivor instructed the Stone Age peoples to leave in their monuments. It's a great and compelling narrative, but it greatly discounts the ingenuity and creativity of the Stone Age people who actually lived. Is it not fascinating enough that these people who had not yet learned to write or do math or shape metal or even shape clay or to grow crops or tame wildlife? <laughs> they didn't even have a wheel. But nevertheless, they had the ability to shape these multi-ton stones into pillars. Ten metric tons. And they moved them into place without even having a wheel. Is it not intriguing enough that they could carve magnificent depictions of animals and even people into these pillars in varying degrees of lifelike accuracy? With flint knives? Some of these carvings are extremely lifelike, while some show an amazing degree of abstraction and artistic flair. Does it not captivate the modern observer enough that the beauty, the intricacy, the sheer amount of effort intrinsic in constructing these structures shows such a level of dedication from these people? that dedication forever altered human life. Is it not amazing enough that the purpose, the belief system that facilitated such a feat is perhaps forever beyond our grasp? That we will never know why they built this? That we can never understand these people? because it was just simply too long ago that they lived. like to take a moment to thank our generous sponsors and that would be you our listeners through your support on patreon we can keep this show up and going if you would like to make a donation go to our patreon page you can contribute as little as a dollar each month in return we'll read your name at the end of each podcast episode and we may even send you some cool stuff like a t-shirt or a bumper sticker with our logo on it if giving money isn't in the cards for you right now, that's totally cool. Just go and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more than you would think. By giving us a good rating, we can rise through the ranks and the algorithm will like us more. Because you guys like us more. If you like us, then tell the algorithm and they'll get other people to like us too. So remember to subscribe and rate wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you got a few extra bucks, visit our Patreon page. Thank you so much. Y'all are my favorite people in the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
Okay, back to the show. See, there is a tendency in archaeology, perhaps one that is necessarily baked into our vantage point, which is far removed from the artifacts that we study in the field. This tendency is to ascribe spiritual significance to anything we cannot discern an immediate practical use for. It is a tendency that has been much maligned by proponents of pseudo-archaeological theories such as Graham Hancock's. Whenever an excavation uncovers a strange artifact that we don't understand, it is given the label of like a ceremonial vase or a religious totem. Whenever a site is found that escapes pragmatic explanation, it is called a temple or a tomb. To some degree, the critics may be right here. There is a certain amount of, well, what else could it be? Sometimes it may be better to simply leave the labels unknown. It would, obviously, be just as much of a trip up to label an odd-shaped artifact an example of ancient advanced technology, though. Wouldn't that just be swapping the assumption of ancient religious significance for an assumption favoring our modern version of techno-religion? Still, just because we don't know what Gobekli Tepe was used for doesn't mean it was necessarily a temple. This, however, was the theory held by the site's discoverer, Klaus Schmidt, and he did have some pretty good reasons for this opinion. First, we have to consider the difference in the way we think about religion today as opposed to the version of spirituality that hunter-gatherers probably practiced. Dualism, that is, the idea of opposing forces of good and evil, which are personified in figures like God and the devil, and monotheism, that is, the idea that there is a singular ruling authority which governs every aspect of existence, such as in the Abrahamic traditions. These are the primary versions of spirituality today, though of course they are not the only versions. From what religious scholars have been able to gather, from the scant evidence that is reaching us from the distant past, these kinds of ideas were nowhere practiced among hunter-gatherers, however. They most likely practiced a version of spirituality called animism. Rather than relying on a spiritual father or a myriad of spiritual rulers, such as in the polytheistic traditions of ancient Greece, Stone Age people found their spiritual significance in everything. Not only did their fellow man have a spirit, but so did the gazelle that they consumed, the grasslands that the gazelle grazed on, the sky over all of them, as well as every tree, stream, and rock in their world. Everything was alive. Everything had meaning. This makes it a bit hard to separate religious meaning from a practical use when it comes to ancient artifacts and sites such as Gobekli Tepe. The bright line that separates the spiritual from the secular in our modern world, not only is it not quite always as bright of a line as we would like to think, but it is also a relatively new development in the way we structure our societies. If Gobekli Tepe did serve as a location for something perfectly pragmatic, such as a communal slaughterhouse for the nomadic peoples of the region, there still would have been an immense amount of spiritual significance steeped into this place. 
and there are good reasons to think that this was, indeed, a communal place of meeting for all the nomads that called this region of the Fertile Crescent their home. First of all, as mentioned earlier, there is no evidence that people actually lived on this hill. There are no hearths, no waste pits, no evidence of continual occupation at all. It even seems unlikely that, if this place was a temple, there were priests who lived here continually. On the other hand, there is evidence that the place was in continual use for a very long time. There are the separate and distinct layers of the site. Also, it seems that the people who used this place had a habit of periodically burying everything and erecting a new version of the temple, or whatever it was, on top of the old one. Maybe there was some significance in the actual construction of these megalithic rings. Or perhaps, with nobody living there full time, the place would occasionally fall into disrepair, prompting the builders to knock down the old stones, bury them out of reverence, and then erect a copy nearby. All in all, there are about 20 rings of these multi-ton pillars buried in the hill. All of the ones unearthed so far show this pattern of construction, burial, and reconstruction. So we conclude from this that the site is not a monument that was built and then abandoned, left to decay, forgotten, and untouched. It was a place that was continually used for centuries. In addition to the constant renewal of the place, we see a clear progression both within the site and spreading out from the site. As I mentioned earlier, there are distinct layers within the hillside. The oldest layer contains circular arrangements of pillars, which are larger than the ones found in the newer layer. The newer also contains rectangular buildings, which is a more efficient use of the space. These smaller rectangular buildings, however, exhibit a trend towards less sophisticated artwork and building techniques. It seems by the time they had gotten to layer two, they had figured out that a rectangle was just a better way to build your buildings as opposed to a circle. But they were kind of just in a hurry, just throwing the stones together almost haphazardly. And the carvings didn't seem to hold as much significance to them. They certainly put less effort into everything they did in layer two. I would have to agree with Graham Hancock. This is one of the strangest things about Gobekli Tepe, and something which is in need of explanation. The oldest pillars show much more nuanced and skilled carvings, more careful placement, and larger arrangements. It seems that as time progressed, the people building these gathering places just put much less and less energy into their construction until finally they just stopped building them at all. Perhaps this has something to do with the other progression that has been noticed concerning Gobekli Tepe. You see, nearly all of the early Neolithic sites that archaeologists have uncovered in this region of the world since the discovery of Navali Chorti have had examples of these T-shaped pillars within them. These are usually arranged in a circle and are assumed to be some sort of community building or gathering place within the settlements. None of these places are as old or as large and intricate as Gobekli Tepe, however, 
which has led some to conclude that the design of these communal buildings and all of these sites are meant to mirror the ones found at Gobekli Tepe. The theory is that Gobekli Tepe was built first, and then later, as settlements began to crop up throughout the Fertile Crescent, these settlements built their own smaller versions of the larger regional center that is Gobekli Tepe. This kind of makes sense to me as an explanation of why the artwork became less and less sophisticated over the years. People simply became more focused on their own local structures and eventually gave up on the idea of a regional meeting place altogether. The site could have started as a place for all the nomadic tribes in the region to gather, celebrate, and perhaps practice their versions of spiritual ceremonies. But time moved on, people started to settle down and become more focused on their own little corner of the world. Eventually, they simply didn't need the regional center anymore. They had their own temples back home. Now, I am no archaeologist, and I don't know if this is totally in line with what actual experts think happened, but like I said, it kind of makes sense to me. Klaus Schmidt, for his part, did believe that this was a regional meeting place. He also saw the similarities in the pillars found at Gobekli Tepe and all the other early Neolithic sites, as we saw from the quote I read earlier. He believed that the site was a place of worship devoted to an ancient cult of the dead. He presumed that as they excavated the site further, they would find graves alongside the megalithic rings. Although most of the stuff I found online about Gobekli Tepe repeated that only about 5% of the site has been excavated, I don't think that this is quite an accurate figure, and there's actually been a good bit more unearthed since this information made its way into the public space. This is according to comments that archaeologist, illustrator, and science communicator Jens Nortroff made over Twitter to the host of the history podcast Our Fake History, Sebastian Major. Okay, quick note here. I've got two things to say. One, I would highly suggest googling Jens Nortroff and checking out his website. That's just jensnotroff.com. This guy looks like a real-life Indiana Jones. It looks like he's still in the process of putting the website together, but if you are in need of another real-life role model whom you could think about and go, wow, I wish I could be like him, well, there you go. Secondly, if you haven't heard Sebastian Major's awesome show, Our Fake History, please do yourself a huge favor and look it up. If you like my show, you will definitely love his. He's another newly acquired role model slash hero of mine. If my show could just be half as cool as his... <sighs> anyway, back to the show. Jens says that much more than 5% has been excavated now, but there certainly still remains a good bit of digging to do. Archaeologists, however, have left a lot of the site buried intentionally. They don't want to dig up any more than is necessary for understanding the artifacts and monuments and the context in which they were created. The only reason we have them around to study today is because the early Neolithic people decided to bury them rather than leave them to be slowly disintegrated by the elements. By using tools such as ground-penetrating radar, scientists can ascertain how much of the site remains buried and what sort of things still lie beneath the ground. It is possible that there are burial sites connected with a funerary cult still buried at Gobekli Tepe. 
So it's clear that this place was pretty significant to the people living in the Fertile Crescent 11,000 years ago. But what exactly they found so special? Well, it's hard to say if we will ever be able to know for sure. Today, the land surrounding the hill hardly conjures up ideas of fertility. I've read descriptions of the conditions on the plateau from whence this hill of silent ghosts rises as being similar to those on the American prairies during the 1930s, a period of time known as the Dust Bowl. The comparison is apt since the same phenomenon caused both. Years of intensive farming. When the monument at Gobekli Tepe was built, the workers could have looked out over a lush landscape. It was most likely forested and teeming with wildlife. The sheer amounts of wild game that would have been needed to feed the number of workers required for such a feed as quarrying, carrying, and placing all of these pillars would have been bewildering. That's not even taking into account the possibility that additional bounties of food could have been here at feasts and ceremonies. The landscape must have been quite a Garden of Eden, indeed, to hold such an abundance. None of the carvings on the site's pillars reflect this abundance, however, whereas older Stone Age cave paintings feature hunting parties and the capture and slaughter of prey, and later artwork created after the Neolithic Revolution, that is, the advent and widespread use of agriculture, depict animals like the Oruk, the ancestor of our modern cows. The carvings on the pillars at Gobekli Tepe feature creatures such as vultures, lions, foxes, scorpions. Klaus Schmidt regarded this as evidence of his death cult theory. He supposed these depictions of predators and dangerous animals were meant to be guardian spirits sent here to protect the dead and perhaps guide them into an afterlife. Another plausible theory, which Ian Hodder discussed during his May 2016 appearance at Talks at Google, entitled Origins of Settled Life, Gobekli and Chatohayuk, is that the monument could have been a place where nomadic people would come to master their fears. He called the site a, quote, scary, fantastic world of nasty-looking beasts. Perhaps... And this is just a little theory I conjured up just now as I write this episode. It may or may not have been proposed by actual experts who know way more about this than I do. And it may or may not be totally implausible. But perhaps this was a place where tribes throughout the region simply gathered to celebrate the abundance of the area together with a great big feast. This would foster some solidarity between different hunter-gatherer groups. A motivation, by the way, which has been proposed by actual archaeologists such as Oliver Daedric. But my little armchair archaeology addition here is that maybe all the carvings of fierce predators are the hunter-gatherer's way of identifying with these powerful beasts. Maybe it's kind of like, um, I'm so awesome, I killed 15 gazelles this season. We all killed so many that we could have this huge party. I'm going to carve a lion here so that everyone else will remember how fierce I am and how many gazelles I killed this year, just like a lion. Like I said, it's just speculation from a total amateur, but it seems plausible to me. 
which kind of gets to the point that I'm really trying to make here, which is, we don't really know what this place was used for. In fact, it's entirely possible that we cannot know. The chasm of time that separates us from the feasts, ceremonies, funerals, or whatever gatherings that were held on this hilltop amongst these mysterious pillars is just too great. We have no context to put these images of snakes and foxes into, culturally. We have no preserved descriptions of the way the people attended these gatherings felt or what they believed, what they loved and what they held sacred. All we can gather is that we must have held something sacred, or otherwise loved it dearly, in order to justify the incredible expense associated with constructing the monuments at Gobekli Tepe. Sadly, Klaus Schmidt will not be able to witness the discovery of that elusive piece of evidence that conclusively proves why this awe-inspiring site was erected, if such evidence exists at all. He died at the age of 60 in July of 2014. Further excavation and study continues on the site, which has been declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Our world today certainly has good reason to cherish and protect this ancient monument. To drive home why, I'd like to read you another quote. It's from a riveting article that appeared in the New Yorker on December 11th of 2011 by Elif Batuman, entitled The Sanctuary, the World's Oldest Temple and the Dawn of Civilization. It's a bit of a conversation that she, the author, had with one of the locals that the archaeological team had hired as a digger. She asked the man what it felt like to unearth one of these mind-blowingly ancient pillars covered in amazing artwork of frightening creatures. He responds, It's beautiful, actually. It's a beautiful thing. When you first find a pillar, when the top of the stone is just visible, first you ask yourself, what animals will be on it? Then you dig and dig, slowly, bit by bit, because you know that by digging, you're causing damage. Slowly, always slowly. But sometimes you can't contain yourself. You think, let's just quickly look, see what's there. Sometimes we wonder if one of the people from back there were to sit up and talk to us. What would the man say? What language does he speak? What is he? Is he shorter than us or taller than us? What is he?
even if we can never know the answers to this man's questions, the sight remains. Even if the ghosts are forever silent, they still haunt this hill. The simple fact of this place's existence, so out of place, so contrary to everything we thought we knew about our past, this inevitably stirs the heart of anyone who knows about it and understands what it means. It means that our ancestors could do far more amazing things than we thought them capable of. It means that our deepest past, our very transition from the animal kingdom to human cultures, it's still not understood. It means that even with all of our incredible advances in technology and scientific knowledge that has been gained over the last few centuries, we still lack the wisdom to truly know where we came from. We used to think that spirituality came from society, that the great machine of civilization emerged from the advent of farming. And out of this machine, we created gods and monsters, stories and rituals, great monuments by which to remember civilization's great creations. But Gobekli Tepe, it tells us that it's very likely the other way around. Society came about as a result of our need for spirituality. First, we built the monument. Here, we could feast and observe our rituals, celebrate, commune together. Then, we started to settle around little copies of this monument, maybe so we could always be near such a sacred place. We started to farm, maybe so we could feed the workers who built the monument. We didn't build monuments and temples out of a sense of meaning that we had gathered with the machine of civilization. Rather, as Klaus Schmidt put it, quote, It was the other way around. The extensive, coordinated effort to build the monoliths literally laid the groundwork for the development of complex societies. End quote. The thought I'd like to leave you with may seem unrelated, but hear me out to the end, please. Perhaps it's just because I'm writing this episode in December, but this thought has stuck with me all throughout my research of this topic. Every society today has a holiday around this time of year, as we near the winter solstice. The darkness and the cold we face in the northern hemisphere tends to instill in us all a need for the comfort and the warmth of our friends and family. But in a time when the reason for the season seems to be the relentless advancement of consumerism and of avarice, that comfort can, at times, feel a bit distant. Perhaps we can find a little hope in the fact that the very beginnings of our society, of all human society, lies in the realm of the spirit. Now, I'm not endorsing any particular brand of religious experience here. Whether you celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Diwali, Los Posados, the Winter Solstice, Mauli del Nabi, Zaratosh Diso, Rohatsu, 
or Christmas during these cold months from November to January. Don't let yourself get discouraged by all the shopping madness in the stores, the insane holiday traffic, the crazy amounts of cash dropped on gifts and gaudy decorations, the ads, the gimmicks, the desperation, the hustle and bustle, or the clamor and stress. That's all part of our modern society's version of this holiday season. Just remember that this whole gargantuan machine that we are all a part of was, very likely, first set into motion for one purpose. Even if I cannot say specifically what that purpose was, and what it looked like exactly, we can say that it enabled our ancestors to come together in big feasts and allowed them to celebrate what they felt was sacred in their own way. I can't tell you the real reason for the season, any more than I can tell you what the ghosts on that red hill in Turkey would say if they weren't silent. But I can say with some confidence that being together and celebrating the people and beliefs that we cherish is the reason for everything else. researched, and narrated by me, Aaron Bradford. This show is my effort to bring you, our faithful listeners, a little bit of clarity to some of our world's most perplexing mysteries. Even if a perfectly complete explanation of these enigmas is simply beyond our reach. I truly hope that you will be able to draw your own conclusions on these topics, and perhaps even approach the unknown in a totally new way. By doing so, together we can find a way to explain the perplexing, demystify the obscure, elucidate the inscrutable, even if it is with imperfect clarity. A special thanks to Crystal for having my back on this endeavor and for helping me make this crazy idea into a real show for all of you out there in podcast land to enjoy. Another special thanks to our patrons for helping to keep this show running. Thank you so much, Gwen Scarborough and Roger Scarborough. Y'all are just my favorite people in the world right now. Another special thanks to Zapsplat.com, where I got all the sound effects for this episode. And of course, a very special thanks to you, the listener. Without you, we wouldn't have a show. Please subscribe and review wherever you are listening to this. If you would like to learn more about the different theories that try to explain what Gobekli Tepe is and who built it and why, I will include links to all of my sources for this episode on our website. As always, if you have any questions or comments regarding this episode or any other episode of Imperfect Clarity, please do not hesitate to contact me. Look up our show on Facebook or email me at imperfectclaritypodcast at gmail.com or you can check out our website at imperfectclaritypodcast.com Until next time, 
keep contemplating the confounding, you'll gain a little more understanding. Even imperfect clarity is always better than easy answers.